0: a fire on the mountain, burning out of control, the sky's set blazing all its red and gold, the temperature's rising and the wind is blowing hot, we gotta turn this ship around, before we run aground, we gotta turn this ship around, before we run aground. Welcome to Off the Record with Paul Hodes here on WKXLA. am FM streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, where you can also find us archived for your binge-listening pleasure. We are a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes, so you can reach us anywhere, day or night, night or day, night and day, around the globe with your 21st century... Digits. You can dial us up as a podcast, and I'm going to welcome back to Off the Record one of my favorite people in the world, Matt Robeson, who is the author of a com, a blog about politics in terms of what's going on under the surface, and lately he has also been featured with his articles, exposés, and interesting stuff on AlterNet. Uh Matt, welcome back to the show. Thanks so much. So, uh what a wild week it's been. I mean, here we are. The circus has left Town. The elephants and the donkeys and the clowns have all packed up their tents, they have loaded their wagons, and they have moved on. The great TV set that becomes New Hampshire during the New Hampshire primary, flooded with reporters, journalists, hangers on, and uh, other. Ilk from all around the globe have left us in a state of shock and awe. They've left us in a state of postpartum primary depression. They've left us with some happy memories and some surprises. First of all, of course, we started this surprising couple of weeks with the debacle in Iowa. A true, a a a true. A true wart on the landscape of Democratic politics. The Iowa State Democratic Party just didn't seem to be able to get it together to count things up. The Republicans jammed the phone lines while people at the caucuses were trying to call in results. We didn't get any results. We finally got results. Everybody declared victory, headed to New Hampshire with... Uh, not a lot of momentum, except some self self aggrandized momentum, we came to New Hampshire, and things started shifting around to some degree. Uh, I was on the ground uh, with uh, Joe Biden, and uh, I witnessed I think a kind of downward downward slope for the Joe Biden campaign over the week he was here before the primary. Uh, Seemed like it was low energy, low crowds. I didn't think uh, much was 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 going on. Uh, Buttigieg and Sanders seemed to be doing what Buttigieg and Sanders did, holding uh, big rallies and big crowds and generating a lot of enthusiasm. Uh, couldn't tell what was going on with Elizabeth Warren. She seemed to have a whole lot going on. And the real surprise turned out to be, over the last weekend before the primary, Amy Klobuchar. I saw some articles that said, well, how do you win, win a primary by finishing third? And it's because you defy expectations and you, uh, you make some noise. I was at the Democratic debate on Friday in the room, in person. It was a well-oiled machine. It was a good event. It actually, given how awful these debates have been how excruciatingly painful uninformative and unhelpful the debates have been uh... the debate uh, before the democratic primary in manchester was well handled well-managed the candidates actually got to talk we actually learned a little bit about them and i thought that amy klobuchar came out came out strong and then on saturday the democrats held their mcintyre shaheen dinner a an annual uh, annual affair that raises money for the party, uh, now named after Senator McIntyre and Senator Shaheen, and along with a couple of awards, all the candidates spoke. 7,000 people attended, which people thought was a pretty good sign for enthusiasm among the Democrats. And I have to say that Bernie was Bernie and Buttigieg was Buttigieg. He took a little bit of swipe here and there at various people, and their supporters were out with banners and signs, and Bernie had Lighted fluorescent signs for his supporters. I was very impressed, Matt. You know how much I love yard signs, and well, I love yard signs, but I really now I want flashing fluorescent yard signs. If um, when when I go back at it, I think that's the new 21st century kind of yard sign. And uh, Joe Biden supporters were uh, kind of uh, not uh, not not all that not all that loud, not all that many of them. And on Saturday night at that dinner, uh, Klobuchar really, really lit the place up. She lit it up. She uh, galvanized the room. She worked the stage. She. Uh, I think in the end took advantage of the New Hampshire primary in a pretty remarkable way. She grew as a candidate, she grew as a speaker, she spoke from the heart and frankly after uh, the results started to come in and uh, she gave her speech to her supporters and it was broadcast live on MSNBC, she um she came out um uh, she came out strong. She used the time well. She had introduced herself to America. She's got a stump that now pulls on the heartstrings and uh makes a pretty good case. Meanwhile, uh Bernie Sanders is now considered a front runner. Pete Buttigieg is right behind him if you add up the moderate vote um in the New Hampshire primary. The moderates beat the far left. The candidates are off to Nevada and South Carolina, where um, Amy Klobuchar doesn't have much uh, on the ground. Joe Biden is hoping that South Carolina and Nevada are his firewall with Africans and Americans and Latinos. Uh, Pete Buttigieg needs to show people that he can actually get an African American to vote for him. Bernie Sanders um, is trying to appeal to a people of color and hasn't always done that. And Elizabeth Warren says this is going to be a long primary and she's um, going to fight hard and dream big all the way. Meanwhile, hanging over the entire affair is Michael Bloomberg, who has spent North of, I don't know, what, $350 million on his campaign so far. Huge amount of television ads. Huge. And he now is a team uh, building in New Hampshire. He's going to build out everybody. He's got more than 2,000 uh, staffers. He is uh, rising in the polls. The polls are showing him just behind Joe Biden in terms of uh, favorability among African-Americans. And it's jump ball in the Democratic primary, and who do you think really won? I say it's Donald Trump. What do you think, Matt?
1: I couldn't agree more that the true winner of the last week and a half is Donald Trump. There was a headline in the political newspaper Politico saying that, thus far, the process has led to Trump's dream scenario, and inside the Trump campaign they are described as literally salivating, uh, at the results of the last two weeks. But, look, I, I do think that going back two months ago when uh, I was on your show, we identified two questions hanging over the nominating process. At the time, one was, could Amy Klobuchar make a dent in New Hampshire uh, and Iowa and start to assert herself as a real player in the nominating process? And the answer to that. So far seems to be yes. And the second question was, what about the billionaires? And especially Mike Bloomberg, will they be able to start to get traction? And what will their role be, especially with Bloomberg's unorthodox strategy of skipping the first four states? And the answer there seems to be, it seems to be working. He's risen to about 12% in the national polling averages, and there are certainly a lot of more than whispering going on in Democratic circles that he may be where the wheel stops in moderate Democrats search for an alternative to uh, the more liberal wing candidate, which seems to be Bernie Sanders.
0: Well, to what extent are we going to end up replaying 2016 when Democrats fractured, Democrats divided, Democrats became unhappy with each other, and it was really hard to establish any kind of real party unity? I mean, you've got a scenario where Bernie is leading, Bernie is also done a sensational job in small dollar fundraising. I mean, he's surpassed everybody in the field in small dollar fundraising, and we'll we'll say parenthetically, of course, that M- Mayor Bloomberg doesn't take money from anybody because he's just spending his own. And by the way, he says he's going to spend his own billions, whether he's the nominee or not, which is kind of a counterintuitive argument for a candidate to make, which is, hey, you know, vote for me or don't vote for me. Either way, I'm going to spend my billions and help get a Democrat el- Democrat elected. It's kind of uh, it's it's counterintuitive, but in a way, it's kind of uh, kind of charming. Uh, but so you've got Bernie out there with huge uh, huge support in terms of uh, grassroots. And remember, back in 2016, the establishment Democrats were. Uh, unhappy at the idea that that Bernie uh, was doing something, and we had some flim at the at the DNC. Um, people are, are are wondering whether the same thing is going to happen, and of course, the DNC is. But, you know, it's a private club. It's not like it's, a, it's a, 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 an operation that has some fiduciary duty to anybody to do anything above board. Um, I mean, the only thing that you can do about the DNC, if they choose to uh, put their finger on the scales in any way, is to whine and complain about it and uh, say it's non-democratic. But I don't know that they really care.
1: I I think you're 100% right. and I do want to return to this idea of what is the role of the party in pushing the nominating process. But to your earlier question about what is the risk right now that the party is going to fracture along the lines that it did in 2016, I think it's extremely high. I think the situation is worse than is even apparent on the surface. Currently, 53% of Sanders supporters are willing to say in surveys that they would definitely support the Democratic nominee. That is a huge problem, because if you look across the board at the swing states where Trump was able to uh, assemble a a very minuscule winning margin, we're talking about the Midwest Rust Belt states. In each case, the differential of Sanders supporters in the primary, who voted for Sanders in the primary, and then voted for Trump in the general election was that winning margin. So that is a big deal. So
0: wait a second, also, let me just oh, go let, me, ahead, let me stop yeah. you for a quick second just to be clear. I, I'm I, I'm not sure I heard you right. You're telling us that in surveys 53% of Sanders supporters say they won't vote for another a different democratic nominee other than Bernie Sanders.
1: I'm saying only 53% will say for sure that they plan to. So About, about half. Okay. About half are willing to say, yep, I'm there. Now, that is, you know, a huge issue for the Democratic Party right now. It's that, a lot of voters. Well, it's a, it's a hostage situation where, you know, give us what we want or the donkey gets it. Um, and look, I understand that we're in the middle of a very emotional nominating process. So I, I don't hold against anyone expressing the sentiment that they feel really strongly about their preferred candidate. And you're right that Bernie Sanders inspires great devotion from his supporters. So I would hope, but hope is not a strategy. I would hope that over time, if a different nominee emerges, that there would be some consolidation, but this is a huge risk factor, right? And you look beyond that, even if you look at some of the more centrist candidates, over about a quarter of Biden, Warren, and Buttigieg supporters say that they're not confident at all that the primary is being conducted fairly, so they have a grievance that is brewing. So I think that right now, there is a substantial risk that the Democrats are setting themselves up for a very fractured approach to, all hyperbole aside, the most important election of any of our lifetimes, where we're going to determine if Donald Trump, the most unorthodox and, I would argue, damaging president in American history, is going to get a second term. And the Democrats are going to go into that all in a mess.
0: We're talking with Matt Robeson, who's the author of a more perfect union a blog devoted to his interesting thoughts about politics. He's also now a contributor to Alternet. Uh, is that Alternet.com? Dot org dot org alternate.org. it's off the record with paul hodes on wkxl we're going to take a very short break to hear from some important people who help support our station and we'll be back after this don't go away we're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXLA and FM, streaming live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com for your binge listening pleasure. You can visit NH Talk Radio and listen to all our past shows, and we're a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. We're talking with Matt Robison, the author of a More Perfect Union Forum.com, a blog devoted to his thoughts about politics. He's also now a contributor to alternate.org, where you can find some very interesting articles that um, that take a attack from a, a different direction than most people who think about politics. Matt is a deep thinker. We've been talking about some of the fallout from the Iowa and New Hampshire process of the past couple of weeks. And Matt, let's now, let's take a dive. Let's take a, a dive into the Twilight Zone. do 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 Now you're entering the Twilight Zone. You're entering the place where... Democratic candidates are nominated. You are entering the nominating process. So let's talk a little bit about what it is, what it's not, how it got to be what it is, and what we need to do about it. I know you've been thinking about it. Uh, You have a recent article out on Alternet.org that dives deep into this. Can you start by giving us some background, some history? How did we get where we are, and what are some of the issues we're facing with the process we've got?
1: Great question. So I think there's a perception that the process that we have right now for selecting a Democratic presidential nominee was sort of a founding father's hand down um, that it's a, it's a long-standing Democratic process and that Iowa and New Hampshire's role in that process uh, was similarly written in stone. Nothing could be further from the truth. The reality is that what we have together is sort of a duct-taped together set of short-term solutions that were devised to essentially placate party insiders and loud complainers over the last 50 years. So, we didn't even have a primary process, uh, a set of primary votes that led to awarding of delegates to a nominating convention before 50 years ago. In 1968, there was a great deal of unrest at the Democratic Convention in Chicago. And in the aftermath, the party elders convened and decided that for optics purposes, they needed to make it seem like voters had a bigger voice uh, in the process and that it wasn't all being decided in smoke-filled back rooms.
0: Well, wait a second. Bigger, wait, wait. Let me, go wait ahead, let me stop you for a minute. I remember 1968. That's the year I graduated from high school and went off to college. And in the summer of 1968, we witnessed the spectacle of protesters uh, being beaten in Chicago and then... Mayor Daly in Chicago, kind of laughing his way through it after he'd sent the police out after people who uh, looked a lot like me at the time. Um, it was a it was a it was a terrible it was a terrible time in the country. Uh, the Vietnam War was on. Uh, P, uh, young people were going to Vietnam and dying. There were extraordinary student protests. People were in the streets. It was a very tough time. But how. How how did the nominee, the Democratic nominee selection process work? If there weren't primaries, if there were no votes, what, what was the situation? There were primaries,
1: but they were mostly dog and pony shows. And what ended up happening at the convention, where there was so much unrest, is that the party selected Vice President Hubert Humphrey as the nominee, despite the fact that he had never won a single primary. So... What ended up happening in the in the aftermath is that, like all parties and governments that can't just go out and solve a problem, they convened a commission. And as a result, they crafted the modern primary process. And you saw, for example, a, a growing role for the New Hampshire primary. In 1980, The the problem, at least the perception of the problem, was that maybe the pendulum had swung too far in the other direction. So guess what? There was another commission, and this time they created the system of superdelegates so that party elders could put a little bit more of a thumb on the scale. You can fast forward a little bit. There were more kind of back and forth, but by 2008, the problem was that some states didn't like the fact that Iowa and New Hampshire were really in the process.
0: Well, no, nobody, yeah. nobody likes that Iowa and New Hampshire are in the process. Everybody always complains that they're too white, too small, uh, too unimportant, too, too few people. Uh, why should we, why, why? Why should those two states, one a Midwest state, another a Northeast state, why in heaven's name should they have so much power? Should they be given so much importance? When did that happen? Well, that's a, that's a great point.
1: You know, Iowa began to assume its sort of current uh, uh, leading status because of a, a strategy that Jimmy Carter utilized In 1976, he recognized that he might have an advantage in the caucus process and use that as a springboard. And that's sort of the strategy that candidates have assumed ever since. But I think what you're pointing to is really the larger point, my larger point in my article, which is that each time we went through one of these gyrations, it was around a small question of uh, maybe there's a little bit more role for party insiders. Maybe there's too much role for party insiders. Maybe the calendar, maybe we should have less role for the superdelegates. But it's not questioning the fundamental approach to how Democrats select a nominee. And in that whole long history, the one word you haven't heard in there is winning. There was no fundamental thought given to what would a process look like that resulted in a winning nominee in the Democratic Party having the best chance possible to win the presidency. Now, the answer to that question has evolved over time as the parties have evolved, as they've moved further apart, as the Republican Party has moved further right. But it's still the only operative question the Democrats should be worried about. I don't care personally one bit about a compromise that was crafted 25 years ago to placate the Iowa power brokers of the time about their role in the process. All I care about, and I think all most Democrats should care about, is how can we have a process that produces the strongest possible nominee in the age of Donald Trump?
0: Well, you know, in in defense of the New Hampshire primary, just for a moment, I, I think about the uh, iowa caucus system and i cannot i can say honestly i don't think anybody understands it maybe there are three people in iowa who really understand what happens in a room full of musical chair candidates where you you gather in a corner and and get counted for your candidate and if your candidate doesn't get enough votes well then you you play musical chairs and you go to a different corner i mean it's kind of like in first grade go to your corner um but you you get to go to a different corner and then there's the second alignment and then you see how many votes that happens and then you you get a third alignment if that one doesn't work. And finally, uh, they, they, you know, last time they developed an app which didn't work. They tried to uh, call in results, and the Republicans conveniently had jammed all the phone lines with prank phone calls to the party so that nobody uh, could phone in the results, and people were left hanging for weeks and weeks. And a lot of candidates put a lot of emphasis on Iowa. I mean they just spent they spent uh, years there years and you end up with a technical glitch that basically sends the whole thing into the you know where and uh, a, and you don't get a result in contrast the New Hampshire primary has been run for a long time pretty pretty well and it has given candidates Um, a chance in an even smaller geographical area uh, than Iowa to get up close and personal with voters, Um, and albeit voters who may not now be uh, specifically uh, demographically aligned with the general uh, body of voters in the Democratic Party in terms of uh, racial Diversity, but who take the job very seriously? Who vet the candidates? Who ask questions? Who come out? Who who help uh, if the candidates are are able to hear uh, and willing to accept advice? Help make candidates better. The New Hampshire primary works pretty pretty well, and for all well, the- works at what? Works at what? Can I can I push back on you for a second? Sure. Because because
1: to me let me let me ask you this. does if it if it were true that the virtue of New Hampshire is that voters meet the candidates up close and personal, do we have any evidence that the ability to campaign up close and personal leads to victory in the general election? My point is, I would I think that the answer to that is definitively no, quite the reverse. It seems like in this decade, in recent decades, the things that lead to you winning are being able to communicate your message through modern media. You have to be strong on TV. You have to be able to command media presence. You have to have a strong operation uh, to fundraise. Uh, You have to be able to perform in various ways when the party. But the thing that is probably least correlated with being a strong general election candidate is being able to do hand-to-hand retail politicking and I I would just say that the point extends in, in a larger way. You started by saying that why should Iowa have this role? Why should Iowa and New Hampshire have this role? And people are right that it's a demographic problem. I think another even bigger problem perhaps is why are these states, the ones that we're focusing on early in the process, Are these necessarily the states where the party needs to win in order to win the general election? Now, it happens that New Hampshire is a swing state. Not so much. South Carolina, not so much. So I think that there is a, a need for a fundamental rethink. How can we select a nominee that is going to give the Democratic Party the strongest chance to win in a general election in the states where you need to win?
0: You're actually arguing that the ability of a candidate without great resources, without a big organization, without um, all the trappings at the beginning of a process uh, of a successful uh, nominee – Uh, To come to New Hampshire or Iowa, but let's just focus on New Hampshire because I'm a partisan. To come to New Hampshire and make his or her case uh, and experience uh, momentum um, or develop momentum or the possibility to break out is actually not a really uh, smart way to 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 start the nominating process and I I'll for I'll give you I'll just leave you with the example of Amy Klobuchar now. You could make a pretty strong argument that New Hampshire and uh, the way she's campaigned here and when she peaked and how she used uh, the process and without having all the money of the other candidates vaulting herself into third position and showing that, well, she's uh, younger than Bernie, she's older than Buttigieg, she's um, more centrist than Bernie and she's more experienced than Buttigieg, she's got heart, she's got soul, she's got grit, would be her argument. Uh, She can beat Donald Trump. Uh, She brings women. She brings the Midwest. Um, She pounded away at that both in New Hampshire and on the debate stage. New Hampshire gave her the chance to develop that. Maybe she is. The best nominee for the party. I'm not saying I'm not endorsing her or saying that she is, but New Hampshire gave her that chance. And uh, that still might be important, but I hear your argument. We're talking with Matt Robeson on Off the Record here with Paul Hodes on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live over the internet at NHTalkRadio.com. Matt is the author of A More Perfect Union forum.com. He contributes articles to Alternet.org. We are talking about the fallout of the Democratic nominating process. Matt has some very interesting ideas about how the process ought to be reformed and what we ought to be looking at. And after these words from our sponsors, we will be back to hear from Matt Robeson about what Democrats really should do. Don't go away. We're back. It's off the record with Paul Hoods on WKXL, AM, and FM streaming live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, where our shows are archived for your binge listening pleasure. We are podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes, and we're talking with. Matt Robeson, the author of A More Perfect Union Forum.com, a blog devoted to Matt's thoughts about politics, which are deep, insightful, and sometimes inciting. And we are uh, also very glad that Matt is now contributing articles to Alternate.org, where you can read about his thinking on politics. Matt and I go way back. He's uh, been a big help and smart guy. And uh, now we are taking apart the Democratic nominating process with the radical notion that maybe what we've got isn't what we need. So, Matt, what do we need?
1: Well, the first thing we need to do is think about how each party goes about winning the general election. Nowadays, we really don't care what happens in 30 to 40 states. They're just not contested in the general election. Everyone knows that the election comes down to, and you can variously define it, let's just for our purposes call it, let's, let's, let's be expansive, let's call it 20 states. That's where the real action is. The campaign isn't even run in all of the other states. So to think about it from the standpoint of well, the wait, nominating Hold,
0: hold on one sec. Hold on. Hold on. I, yeah. I know that there are folks who are going to say, wait a second. There are voters in all of the states. What do you mean 30 states are in the bag? Well,
1: Massachusetts, Clinton won over Trump 60 to 33. So it is possible that a Republican, they have a Republican governor, and it is possible that Donald Trump could win. It's just vanishingly unlikely. And look, at the end of the day, the, the, the parties put their money where their mouth is. And come general election time, there will not be a single ad run in california massachusetts new york except for the purposes of you know getting spillover into the media markets and the actual swing states that matter so again at the end of the day for the purposes of electing a president in 2020 we really don't care what the voters in those states think unless mass psychosis gripped everyone and all of a sudden no single democrat shows up in California in 2020, we know it's a foregone conclusion what the election result is going to be there in November.
0: And, of and course. to think
1: about it in terms of the nominating process, think about it this way. Let's take Massachusetts, for example, and compare it to Arizona. Now, there are many reasons to, to kind of like what Arizona brings to the table in terms of selecting a nominee. For one thing, it's a lot more racially diverse. Another attribute is that Arizona is a bona fide swing state. Trump won it 48 to 45. It's going to be one of the most closely contested states in 2020. And like I said before, Massachusetts landslide for the Democrats at a presidential level. But when it comes down to how many delegates each of these states get, meaning how much voice, how much say they get in choosing who the Democratic nominee is, Massachusetts gets more than Arizona. And I currently live in Massachusetts, but why should the Democratic Party care what my preference is? My preference doesn't say anything about who is the Democrat most equipped to beat Donald Trump in 2020.
0: So let me understand. What you're now saying is that the states that we already know the results from. I mean, we could fast forward to um, the day after election day, and in thirty different states, we'd know um, we'd know that the Democrat won those states and won there. Uh, Probably their popular votes significantly and their electoral votes, because we're still dealing with the Electoral College, which, as we know, had a huge, huge impact on the 2016 election. So, So you're saying that in those 30 states, it's almost like well, why bother? Because it's going to be the Democratic nominee, whoever the Democratic nominee is. It's not really, uh, they don't tell us much, uh, Eve, about, about who ought to be the nominee.
1: That's right. And I know I'm being intentionally provocative with this, but I'll just put it this way. There's a very super complicated way that the Democratic Party currently says, how many delegates various states get? And again, Delegates means how much voice, how much say you get in choosing the nominee. Right now, what the party does is it says, if you got more Democratic votes, you get more say in the future. Well, that's nuts. That's crazy. Why should the states that are the biggest runaways that are going to have nothing to do, ultimately, with the margin of victory for the next president, why should they have more say? than the states that are actually on the front line. This would be like the U.S. saying, hey, we have a bunch of generals who are stationed in England currently. They should probably be coming up with our battlefield strategy in Afghanistan. It's just downright okay. crazy. So what I, what I would propose is that we fundamentally change the system to alter how we select our nominee, give much more weight, to the people that live in the states where the, the election is actually going to be contested and also fundamentally measure the strength of the nominees in different ways.
0: Well, you know, it's interesting. It it, it kind of reminds me of the... Uh... Of the of the of a of a sports draft system in professional sports, it's the folks at the bottom. It's the teams at the bottom who get the first draft picks, not the teams who've been successful on the theory that you want to uh, give those. Um, who've had the toughest time and the toughest road to hoe, you want to give them the uh, first crack at the best players to try to even things out. And what you're saying, if I get it right, is those states where uh, the Demo- the democrat winning is the most contested um ought to be the states that have the most say about who to pick as a nominee but wouldn't that that just drive everything sort of toward toward the middle um toward the middle of the ideological spectrum as people say as people Uh, in those states which are truly in play or the swing states or the close states uh, generally just say, we're going for the middle of the road ideologically because that's uh, it gets us closer to what the other guys are?
1: Well, if that's what it takes to win, right? If that is truly what is the winning strategy in all of those states, in Ohio, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Minnesota, Michigan, Arizona, then shouldn't that be what the Democratic Party does? Or should they choose an ideology that one faction of their party likes, but that won't result in winning? It, to me, the notion that you would adopt a strategy that sort of reflects people's feelings within the party but is not ultimately a winning strategy, seems crazy. However, however, I do hear you, and as I was saying before, I do think unity in the party is extremely important to winning. So, I do have a proposal around that.
0: What's the proposal?
1: The Sanders campaign especially has been promoting the idea that their pathway to victory is exciting the base and bringing in new voters, intermittent voters, voters who... Maybe don't show up all that often. I think that this is a testable proposition. They could easily be right. So what we should do is we should have the results in state primaries, not just come down to how many votes you get among Democrats. I think that we should measure the strength of candidates three ways. I think we should measure on the strength of how you deal with Democrats like we do now. That should be one of them. But I also think you should get some credit for bringing in new voters, intermittent voters, kind of let's test the Bernie Sanders strategy for winning elections. I also think that all primaries should be, like in New Hampshire, open primaries where independent voters get to vote in the primary, and there should be a separate category of credit for winning among independent voters. And that would test sort of the centrist view of of politics that you have to win among swing voters you should give the the candidates credit for strength in each of those three categories and that would be a great way to test do they have a viable path to winning in the general election
0: so is it up to the dnc to dictate how the various states uh, deal with their primaries and could they, are they the body that could set new rules? Let's say we adopted your proposal, and that's really uh, the first part of your proposal, because there are other features, I bet, to it. But is that up to the party to say, folks, we're changing the system, and here's how we're going to do it? We're, yes. Uh, yes! Absolutely, and, and,
1: and look, I think regardless of I started my article on this by saying that it's a myth that the Chinese use the same word for crisis and opportunity. That's often said it doesn't turn out to really be true. But what is true is the idea of never letting a crisis go to waste, because it gives you an opportunity and impetus to take action. And I think the Democratic Party is in a moment of crisis, If anyone is happy with the way the nominating process is going right now and thinks that it is likely to produce to give us the best chance of producing a winning candidate, they haven't really been paying attention. So, yes, I think that this is the moment for leadership. I think, especially if the Democrats lose in 2020, it would be time to turn to, let's say, a Barack Obama, someone with the gravitas and the respect across the party to institute a fundamental change. And, yes, I think that the, the DNC... Is the place to do it. And I think that part of leadership is the ability to say no to entrenched interests. The final thought on this is look, at the end of the day, Democrats like to think of themselves as progressives. Progressives mean you're not wedded to what was done in the past simply because it was what was done in the past. You look forward, you make positive change that can help you in the future. This is a moment for progressives. To be
0: progressive, well, it's it's certainly unorthodox. My head is spinning at the at the notion at the at the possibility that your radical your radical idea your your declaring war on the primary would would jeopardize the sacred. The sacred New Hampshire primary status, that, that to me is, it's, it's, it's almost beyond, it's beyond imagining. How could anybody with a microphone in New Hampshire ever support such a radical, radical notion? You, if I recall right, you had some other ideas about media and the use of media yeah. and how they would be used, and, and then finally a role for superdelegates or not.
1: Well, let me let's really put people on tilt here. For just, I'll, I'll just lay it on you for thirty seconds, and um, we'll see if we can blow minds. Um, if anyone loves the current set of debates that are being run by cable companies that uh, do not have the Democrats' best interests at heart, if anyone really loves those, uh, by all means, uh, feel free to email me and register your uh, uh, deep affection. I don't think I'll get too many emails. I think the current debate system is dumb. And I think one of the features that's super dumb of our current nominating system is that it makes all the candidates look bad. Well, you know, there's a whole industry devoted to making people look good in media. It's called Hollywood. And there are shows that are super successful at making people look amazing and develop a fan base. There's reality TV shows. We ended up with our current president because of one. So given the strength of the Democratic Party in Hollywood, I find it hard to believe that you couldn't lock a bunch of Hollywood producers in a room for 24 hours and say, come up with something better. Come up with an awesome three-month reality TV show that makes our candidates look amazing and gets the base really fired up and gets people excited and that they couldn't pull that off. They could certainly pull off something better than the current CNN town hall format.
0: Well, Matt Robeson, a more dot com and alternate dot org. Some wild and crazy ideas about the primary. Ladies and gentlemen, wild and crazy ideas. You heard them here first on Off the Record with Paul Hodes. How do we deal with this crazy way we try to pick a nominee? A way that excludes all the people of color early in the process. A way that gives power to states that aren't, according to Matt Robeson, all that important. We talked about the fallout from this year's early Democratic primary process, and Matt has a whole bunch of ideas about ways we can do it better in the 21st century. Just because we've done it one way in the past, he says, doesn't mean we have to keep on doing it the same way over and over again because maybe we're not on track to pick the best nominee to win. Against Donald Trump, who has been emboldened, empowered, is off on a tear. His authoritarian tendencies are in full flower. And we need a Democratic nominee who will beat Donald Trump. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes on WKXL, AM and FM. Thank you for joining us. I really appreciate Matt joining us, too. We'll be back next week with more Off the Record.